0: This is an AMI podcast. Our voices, our stories, our community. Listen to AMI audio podcasts highlighting news, stories, and information relevant to people with disabilities across Canada. Learn more at ami.ca/slash audio.
1: Gabriel Joseph was just about to set up the slideshow for an awards ceremony at Dalhousie's University Club when he spotted two friends in the crowd. Someone took a photo of the three of them, Gabriel, Erica Budding, and Holly Bartlett. After awards were handed out, Erica called a taxi for Holly and guided her to it. They said goodnight, and Holly got in. Police maintain Holly was dropped off at the entrance to her condo building, right at the front door. But what if she wasn't? What if Holly Bartlett was dropped off somewhere else? I'm Maggie Rarr, and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett.
2: Holly Bartlett was found unconscious under the McKay Bridge after a night out with her friends.
3: The initial police investigation was wrapped up really quickly. Drunk, blind girl, case closed.
1: The 31-year-old's death in March 2010 was ruled an accident.
3: There's a lot of hours in there that we don't know where she was. There's parts of me that sort of died with my sister.
2: I really would like to know what happened to Holly. Somebody knows.
1: Episode four, Disoriented. Anyone who lived in the apartment building at Kencrest with a view of the water back in 2010 could have potentially seen or heard something the night Holly Bartlett never made it home. That's why Peter and I knocked on every single door in the building. And though we did meet people who remembered Holly and who remembered hearing about her, no one had any memory of seeing her that night. But there was one person whose name kept coming up. All right, it looks like he's not here yet. Ah, okay. Peter and I have come back to Kencrest again, but this time we're meeting behind the building in the parking lot overlooking the site where Holly was found. So everyone that we connected with basically suggested that we try to find Kelly Moore. Right. Back then, Kelly Moore was the superintendent of the building at Kencrest. We've tracked him down and he's agreed to meet with us. Thanks for coming, I'm You're Maggie. Welcome. Maggie, nice to meet you. Really nice Hello, to yeah. meet you. Peter. You did nice to meet, meet you. you. So Kelly, when was this the building that you ran? From
4: 2007 to 2015.
1: I'm sure you must remember all, everything that went down with Holly, did the police ever reach out to you?
4: God, it was a couple of months later.
1: A couple of months? I believe oh,
4: wow. so. Yeah, it was two or three months later. I had said that I had seen or heard
1: nothing. Kelly remembers the night in question. He said he wasn't feeling well, that he'd done his rounds early. Every night, he says he'd walk through the building and around the outside of it, kind of like a foot patrol. Sometimes he'd find people drinking or smoking a joint out back, and he'd move them along. But mostly, it was quiet. He said he got used to the volume of the bridge, almost like having a really loud fan on in the summer. Your ears adjust at a certain point, and you just don't notice it anymore. Kelly says he could hear beyond the sound of the traffic when someone was below the bridge. Kids, people drinking or doing drugs, street artists. He says the sound of voices would float up through the din of vehicles streaming onto or off of the bridge. But during his nightly walk, which that night he'd done early, around 11 p.m., He recalls he'd heard nothing. The back parking lot is a long rectangular space. There's a low guardrail beyond it where the earth drops sharply. It's a steep hill, rocky, overgrown, littered with detritus and trash. Kelly tells us people used to throw anything down there, Christmas trees, bottles, furniture. It's so steep that Kelly says when he once tried to clean up the mess, he had to secure a rope to the guardrail to pull himself back up. What about security cameras? Anything like that uh, back here?
4: Well, at that time, I did have one in the back here. Those have uh, since been discarded.
3: <sighs> nobody asked you about security uh, cameras, nobody at the time? Nobody asked me about it. No. The no. police
1: when they came to. No.
3: No. 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 So the security cameras, I'm really curious as to, it would just look over the parking lot, it yep. wouldn't necessarily see down like by where she was found or anything like no,
4: that? No, no, it was, it was a wide angle uh, camera that caught the whole parking lot.
1: To learn that there was a camera that could have been reviewed immediately, that nobody ever asked for it or reviewed it, is just unbelievable. The footage could have been everything, to see what was on it, or even what wasn't. I can't believe there was video footage right there. Mm. But even though it was only the parking lot that was lit, who knows what it could have shown. Right. It looks like the angle that he was describing would have pointed right at the top of the abutment that they said she fell from.
3: Yeah, and even if it didn't show down there to rule out anything in the parking lot or to see something in the parking lot.
1: Yeah, we could have seen whether Holly was in the parking lot or not. This idea that she crawled up the abutment, we could have ruled that out or confirmed it.
3: Just another thing that wasn't looked into.
1: Every time we get a little leave, that like the door just closes. It's just shattering that we don't have that footage and that it's gone. The security camera was installed next to a second floor apartment window overlooking the parking lot. Who knows what police might have learned if they'd seized the video but it would be another four months before they even contacted Kelly Moore. And the footage, whatever was on it, is long gone now. The suggestion that Holly wandered in the freezing winter wind 350 meters from the safety of her front door and somehow got inside a fenced, locked area has never made sense to us. But now there was something else gnawing at me. The idea that Holly might've been in the parking lot behind Kencrest on that night. I needed to retrace her steps. So I got a hold of Brian Parsons, Peter's dad, who had conducted a thorough investigation of his own back in 2010. He'd interviewed everyone Holly was with that night.
0: The story the police had said that her friends said that she was the drunkest that they'd ever seen her. Obviously, you need to determine is that the case? Did she
1: really have that much to drink? Brian and I are driving through Halifax. We're trying to recreate the route that Holly took on that Friday night. Just gonna come up here on the right in the location where the fireside used to be. The restaurant where Holly met a friend for dinner that night no longer exists. A huge condo building is being built where the fireside, a cozy bar with big couches and fireplaces in each room, once stood below street level. She went out to dinner with Moira. Yeah. By her account, they had
0: two drinks. She had had two martinis. Was, uh, they were a chocolate martini, and this was confirmed by uh, Moira. So you've got to remember, too, she'd consumed food while she was having her, her yeah. drink. So there was something there for the, the alcohol. And then they left there. They walked down the road to the liquor store on the way to Jeff Brown's house party. So this is
1: what what used to be the Clyde Street sure. liquor store.
0: It wasn't that far a walk. What are we looking at? No, Four yeah, like... five
1: blocks, maybe? Yeah, less than, eight, you know, eight minutes or something like that.
0: They purchased a bottle of
1: wine. Remember, this is an important moment. Holly preferred using her credit card. Her family and Shelly reminded us of this. Holly felt more secure that way. And she was a penny pincher. Amanda tells us she was always buying coffee for her sister, who'd shrug and say she just didn't have any cash on her. That night, Holly purchased a $10 and change bottle of Argentinian wine to bring to the party at Jeff Brown's house on the way to the ceremony at Dal. She
0: paid with her credit card. Uh, They purchased a bottle of wine, a 750-milliliter bottle of wine to my recollection. At the time, uh, according to Moira, Holly insisted on paying for it and she used her credit card and uh, Moira gave her a $5 bill for the other half because the wine cost about, um, I guess it was $10, is what the price was on it.
1: This is the $5 bill we thought might have been the bill they found near Holly's cane, because it was so rare for her to carry cash. We know from Shelley Adams, Holly had a way of folding her money to make it identifiable. But as far as we know, the bill was never examined for forensic evidence. And as we'll learn later, it doesn't add up with one of the taxi driver's versions of what happened that night and exactly how much cash Holly had on her. In any case, the evening, going out for dinner, then buying booze and stopping at a friend's house before an event is a classic Nova Scotian night out. This harkens back to a tradition any Maritimer will recognize kitchen parties. But I didn't realize until I made friends who weren't from Atlantic Canada, just how steeped it is in our culture. For us, you might picture fiddles and stomping feet, guitars and singing. The modern version is something like this. You go to someone's house for a drink and you hang out in their kitchen. That's how it's done here. And that's exactly what Holly was doing that night.
0: They went to Jeff Brown's house party where they consumed the the bottle of wine. And then we know that somebody had made a martini and that person didn't like it. And Holly had said that she'd like to try it. So she tasted it, but whether she consumed it or not, we're not sure. Then they left shortly thereafter until they went to the graduation party.
1: Holly was surrounded by friends from her program in Jeff Brown's kitchen, including Gabriel Joseph, who later had that picture taken at her table at the event. After Holly died, Gabriel approached Marion at the memorial service. She wasn't that drunk, he told her. He'd walked friends home before on many occasions who were. He wouldn't have let her go alone if he was worried she'd had too much. He needed her to understand this. I know, Marion told him. Holly's friends say she wasn't that drunk, but she had had a few.
0: They basically walked arm in arm and Moira said that they were both a little tipsy. And When we got to the function, Holly insisted on having another drink. I'm guessing that she consumed that drink. Following that, she was seen seated drinking water.
1: This is an important detail that Holly had switched to water. As Shelly Adams said, she could have stayed out partying. She could have kept drinking. But Holly had plans the next morning with her study group. She was going to visit her dad later. From what we can tell, it's at this point, Holly stopped drinking that night.
0: So that was the last of the alcohol that we could track, and that was through the witnesses that were there at the graduation as well.
1: The reason we have so much detail about how the night unfolded is because Brian interviewed each of Holly's friends who were with her that night, not long after her death. His notes tell the story of exactly what happened from many perspectives, including this telling moment. Erica escorted her to the washroom. When I talked to him, did you need to help her? You know, was she
0: intoxicated to the point that she couldn't walk? And no, she wasn't. She could walk and talk and,
1: you know, she negotiated to the washroom just fine with no issues. Erica wasn't helping Holly to the washroom because she was so drunk. She was showing her the way because Holly wasn't familiar with the layout. That's why Brian asked if she needed any additional help, and Erica said she didn't. It's recorded in Brian's interview notes from speaking with Erica back in 2010 that she made the first call for a taxi at 11.18 p.m. It was in her call history, so there was no question about the specific timeline. But awards were still being handed out, and Holly wanted to stay. And the first taxi was either canceled or ignored.
0: And when I asked her, did you have any reason to believe that Holly was intoxicated beyond the point of being able to do things normally or function normally? And uh, she said no, or she would have never let her go in the cab.
1: I have to say here that this has marred my thinking in the case many, many times. No matter how unproductive and unhelpful this line of thought, it's one I've struggled to abandon. What if Holly had taken that first cab, but she didn't? The second cab was called at 11.55 p.m. Erica led Holly outside to it.
0: And when I asked her when she left the function, did you have to help her up the stairs? She said, no, only guide her. And that was it. She had steady walk and she had coherent speech. And we were able to track five, possibly six drinks between six and midnight. So it just didn't amount to drunk blind girl gets disoriented.
1: When you add all of this with everything we've learned about Holly, it just doesn't sound like she was that drunk. Her friend and roommate Andrew Seely told us she could handle a few drinks. We know that she'd switched to water. By all accounts, it looks like she was slowing down, getting ready to call it a night. But we have to be certain. Holly was tiny. She was 4'11" and weighed only a little more than 100 pounds. So Peter and I sought out the help of an expert. We're gonna be connecting with Jim Wigmore, who is this leading toxicologist in Canada, to help explain how that amount of alcohol can metabolize in someone's body. So we sent him all information that we have relating to Holly's blood, basically.
3: The blood sample was taken at 10.30 a.m. on the morning she was found under the bridge in March of 2010.
1: What we're trying to get here is information about whether her blood alcohol level was correctly interpreted, basically.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh. Hi.
2: Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm Jim Wigmore. Hi, Jim. forensic toxicologist.
1: So, Jim, just to start, I was wondering if you could summarize your findings. Uh,
2: according to the, the, the toxicology report, at about 10.30, when the blood was taken... The alcohol level was about 0.09 or 90 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood, which is just slightly over the legal limit at the time the blood was taken.
3: So if Holly was just over the legal limit for driving at 10.30 a.m., what would the blood alcohol level be 10 hours earlier?
2: She would have eliminated, at a low rate, 10 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood per hour. Okay. So for 10 hours, you would add the 10 times 10, 100. So you'd add 100 to the... 90, she started at, and around midnight, she was 190 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood.
1: So in Nova Scotia, the legal driving limit is 80 milligrams. We know that on Friday night, Holly's reading would have been around 190, which is about two and a half times the legal driving limit. But we still don't fully understand what that means in terms of her comportment.
2: The alcohol level that you get depends on your height, age, weight, and gender, basically. Yes. I was also given that she was observed to have approximately six drinks. And uh, over the period of time, and due to her light body weight and being a woman, those six drinks would give her a much higher blood alcohol concentration than a large male.
1: We all know that a man who's 6'4 and 225 pounds scientifically is better equipped to handle six drinks over the course of six hours. Holly was tiny.
3: It sounds like the uh, the calculation you did was uh, pretty consistent with the number of
2: drinks that was suspected she had. Yeah, they're consistent with each other.
1: Okay. Is it possible to tell based on the figures whether somebody was disoriented or not?
2: Um, alcohol, especially these high alcohol levels, is a risk factor for hypothermia because what, what's happening is your body in reaction to the cold cuts off the blood supply to the arms and legs. Right. You know, it wants to retain the, 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 the warm blood to the brain, to the heart, to the kidneys, Trying to so your body's trying to do everything to survive. Now the problem with alcohol is it causes blood flow to the arms and the legs. So what's happening is your body's trying to right. prevent the cold loss, but alcohol's stopping that. So you're more likely to have hypothermia with alcohol than without alcohol and have it induced at a faster rate because you're losing all that heat. Right. Now the problem too, so you have alcohol intoxication which would cause some disorientation. Then as we have increasing uh, hypothermia, the brain starts shutting down and you start having um, a bizarre behavior you can have with hypothermic victims. Some victims before they die will take their clothes off. Some will hide underneath holes. Uh, Some will act, it's called tunneling syndrome. The uh, Germans, call this type of behavior, the translation is uh, cold craziness. Hmm. What's happening is you're you're not getting the, the sugar to your brain, you're not metabolizing it, so you're just starting to have bizarre type of unusual behavior that you wouldn't expect from that individual.
1: After interviewing Dr. Wigmore, I was troubled by the suggestion of cold crazy. We were scraping at the bottom of the barrel when it came to trying to explain to ourselves why Holly would walk all the way down her driveway and eventually behind Kencrest. I'd been so certain from minute one that it hadn't happened that way. Now I was bothered by this idea. Was it possible she could be in an altered state? I didn't like the sound of this cold crazy, so I started looking it up. But I found nothing. No research, no reports. This was not a good sign. To be sure we hadn't missed anything, Peter and I reached out to another expert, Dr. Gordon Giesbrecht, who studies the way bodies respond in extreme temperatures. Yeah. All right. Hi. Maggie, Peter. We've heard a little bit from a toxicologist about how alcohol can accelerate the impact of hypothermia. I guess we're just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, like, uh, un- unfortunately, in this case, by the time um, this young woman was found, um, she was still alive, but she was clinging to life. And I believe her, her body temperature was 20 or 21. Um, so she was in really bad shape. But I-, I just wonder about how long would it take for somebody who'd been outside in minus six degrees Celsius weather who'd had some drinks that night? How long would it take for them to become hypothermic?
5: So, first of all, I think she was seen at midnight. Is that
1: correct? That, that's her, her last known whereabouts where we confirm. Yeah. So yeah.
5: The maximum amount of time that she was out there was six and three quarter hours. That's right. So the bottom line is for her, it would take about that long to get to the temperature she was. Because, you know, you know when, when she was last seen, she was probably normal thermic. Right. So when she was found and you know, the conditions she was in. So... Uh, You know, often predictions are done when we don't have the body or they're found two days later and frozen solid. And you want to know, well, how long would it have taken her to get to 21 degrees? In this case, you know, she was exposed no longer than six and three quarter hours. And uh, she was in the shape she was in.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like based on what you're saying, that she would have had to have been outside for um, for that entire time for her body to reach that temperature?
5: The question is not how long were they out or anything like that, like is often the case. In this case, the question you might have is, was she exposed the whole time? And someone might say, well, she was inside till four and then she went out. Uh, and, um, you know, that's unlikely that she would cool that much.
1: Okay. The, the theory is that she felt... her death she she died of blunt force trauma to the head and as you know was extremely hypothermic at the time that she was found
5: the effect of alcohol has a theoretical effect on rate of core cooling it's a base it's a vasodilator. yeah so theoretically you know you'll hear this that you you drink alcohol you vasodilate you lose heat faster from your skin so you'll increase your heat loss and therefore cool quicker The reality is once you get really, really cold, the thermoregulatory system, which is saying vasoconstrict, will override the alcohol effect. Uh, The alcohol probably didn't speed things up anywhere near as much as this severe head trauma.
1: What Dr. Giesbrecht is saying here is that blunt force trauma to the head can advance the effects of hypothermia. So there is something else that I wanted to ask about that I raise with a lot of hesitation. The toxicologist that we spoke with suggested that, he said very clearly right off the bat that alcohol uh, doesn't explain behavior that the person whose story we're examining is suggested to have displayed specifically involving crawling through a hole in the fence. He raised this subject of Cold crazy, which she said was a loose translation from a German term that that is associated with hypothermia, is that a condition that you're aware of? Is this something? If it is, is it something that you've studied? Have you ever heard of it? What can you tell us about cold crazy?
5: I wouldn't use the cold crazy term. I, I literally in a third of a century have never heard the term. However, there is something called paradoxical undressing. Uh, it's also called burrowing and different different terms like that. And the bottom line is, is some finding someone in some state of undress. You know, they make an illogical decision to disrobe to some extent. And it's a manifestation of your brain not working well. Right. You might be looking to uh, find help, find shelter. You know, I I wouldn't call that cold crazy. I would just call that, uh, you know, a desperate move to try and save themselves.
1: Yeah. I think the main thing that you've really honed in on there that's relevant to our case is that... uh, uh, there was no undressing, mm-hmm. and so that. So I think we could probably say pretty definitively that we can rule out that um, outcome. This has been definitely helpful and informative. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. We really appreciate the time. So we can rule out cold crazy, or the correct terms, burrowing or tunneling. It sounds like even with the advancement of hypothermia due to alcohol that Holly would have had to have been exposed in the harsh outdoor temperature of minus six degrees Celsius for nearly the entire stretch of time, which her whereabouts are unaccounted for, from just after midnight to just before 7 a.m. Which brings me back to the question, what if she was never in the parking lot at Convoy Towers? It's impossible for us to comment on how her body specifically tolerated and metabolized alcohol and we will never know exactly what her experience of drunkenness was that night. At this stage in our investigation, Peter and I were stuck. For every interview we'd conducted or interview we tried to secure, it seemed everything we learned delivered us back to the beginning. It was like walking in a circle in the forest, treading new ground each time, but always arriving at the same place. We needed help from a professional, someone with experience, and maybe more importantly, someone with access. So we found a private investigator and asked him if he'd help us. We're here outside Holly's old place at Convoy Towers. Tom Martin should be here any minute. He's a private investigator. Hey, Tom. Really nice to meet you. Thanks for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you, Tom. I'm Peter. Hi, Peter. Tom Martin.
4: My name is Thomas Martin. I am the president and owner of Martin Associates Private Investigations. My entire career was spent as a police officer, 15 years of it as a homicide investigator.
1: So I'm just thinking now, if you were with Halifax Regional Police in 2010, then you would have been on when this all happened, and when Holly died. Did you ever hear about the case back then? I did. Wow. What was your sense of the case, just having been in
4: the force or heard about it? I heard about it the same way any average person would have heard about it, through the media. Holly's case sort of resonated with me because of her disability, number one. The fact that she was a, a young person, At the time, there was a lot of news clips on Mm. about Holly. And she had it going on. Mentally, she was put together well. She had her act right.
1: But just given your expertise, were any bells ringing off then, like something's not quite adding up? They always do.
4: In a case like Holly's where there were so many different twists and turns that we were aware of, the general public, you know, I wonder if they're doing this, I wonder if they're doing that, I hope they covered this off. 31-year-old women don't reach their demise underneath the bridge for any good reason. I mean, just her location alone makes it suspicious. All suspicious deaths are to be treated as a homicide until proven otherwise. That's Halifax Regional Police policy. This is a suspicious death.
1: This was a watershed moment. Just have an ex-cop reaffirm everything we'd believed about the case. We asked Tom if he'll help us, if he'll give us his input on the lay of the land, on Holly's injuries, on the police theory, he agrees. So we dive right in. So the driver drops her off here, Holly's old place at Convoy Towers. We show Tom exactly what we know from Brian's fastidious notes, where police believe Holly traveled.
4: That actually comes in here. Yeah. Would have naturally followed the route around. Yeah. And would have stopped at the door, right yeah. in front of this door. Yeah. That would have been routine for habitual, for Holly. totally. Yep. Yeah. Holly usually carried her cane in her purse, in her bag, did she not? Yes. Um, like yeah. if she was in a cab, would it yeah. be in a bag? Yeah. When she got out of that cab, that cane would have come up. Definitely. Even if she was going in there, your opinion of hers is that she would have brought she that She would cane use the up.
3: cane. Because it would make it so much easier going through the doors,
1: finding the elevator. We walk the full route down Holly's driveway. All the while, Peter is explaining to Tom how Holly would have navigated. Would, so Holly wouldn't walk out here in the middle?
4: No, she would be trailing a curb. Okay, so she'd hug a curb? Yeah. Because that's where she's going to know exactly where she is, Yeah, right? so she's not walking
1: down the middle yeah. of the lane.
3: From an orientation mobility standpoint, we're walking downhill towards yes. the sound of perpendicular traffic, right. which would be a major cue to Holly
4: that she's going away from her building. How well-versed was Holly in that Excellent. So the police theory is she leaves this she area. She came down this way and she walks down here.
1: That's what they believe,
4: yeah. Okay, she would have walked from here
3: down to this building in front of us? To the end of the road. All the way to the end of the road. Now the traffic is on her left. So that perpendicular traffic as she's walking down her driveway would now be her parallel traffic on her left, which would be kind of like automatic that information to her that she's facing towards the bridge. Right. Disoriented, okay, turn around, put the traffic on your right. That's what we call using your traffic for orientation. Put the traffic on your right, now you'd be walking back towards. All you have is noise here. Right. Exactly. And nothing on the opposite side. Right. So in that case, you're disoriented walking this long distance. This was measured to be like 350 meters. It's a long distance to be going straight disoriented apparently with all this traffic please.
4: If Holly's leaving home coming down here she's almost like she's goal oriented right she's heading to a specific spot. Right. There's a lot of turns and twists and hills and I'm having problems making sense now that I'm here and I'm looking that bridge sound is very distinct it is. It's it's completely different because now you're hearing it from underneath exactly. So what's that going to clue into her what's up you're gonna want to
3: stay away from going towards the bridge if you're disoriented and not to mention another bigger decline than the driveway very
4: steep right
1: so tom just to to recap from taking this walk down here and sharing the information that we have what leaps out at you
4: what pops out at me is why yeah she's home home is safe No matter how blasted you are at the end of the night, if you make it to home, You go in your door. You're going home. Yeah. That's that's, that's an instinct in all of us. And somehow, for some reason, she's down here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't her blood alcohol around 0.09? That's right. If we're looking at a blood alcohol count of 0.09, that's pretty far from blasted. That's pretty far from loaded. Going to the site, walking from Holly's apartment down to where she was found or recovered, is the lack of connectivity. There's no logic, there's no reason that's known as to why this young woman would leave matter of feet from her front door. No, I keep coming back at this. When we're standing right now, I'm looking up there. And I'm looking at this. I, I would call it a nightmare for a blind person. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I know. Why? Um, yeah. You're home, you're safe, you're comfortable, you're... It's a cold night.
1: The why for us hasn't gone away.
4: This young lady would not have done this. This case came off the rails from an investigative perspective very, very early on and it never recovered. There is no closure, but there is justice and there is answers.
1: After walking the path and explaining as much as we can, Tom tells Peter something he's been waiting eight years to hear. Tom says, you would have been stuck to my right hip for two weeks if I was leading this investigation. It was the first time anyone acknowledged the value in Peter's expertise. Next, Tom wants to see where Holly was found. Okay, so the Bridge Commission unlocked this for us. Okay. We want to get up on top of the abutment to see exactly where they suggest Holly went. Right? Okay. Are you good, Peter? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. Tom, Peter, and I are climbing up the abutment, on a giant triangular wedge that anchors the suspension wires holding up the bridge. The sound of the traffic rushing above us is as loud as the ocean crashing. I the ramp upward the is an incredibly sharp angle. This is a hell of an event Yeah. It's very steep. Wow, I can't Probably would see. would know this, right? Ah, uh, yeah.
3: Also, again, the sound of the tra- bridge traffic, which is well, different. You can kind of tell you're under the sound, but holy steep! Yeah, you can't imagine taking a the degree. The
4: degree of angle is a lot more than I ever thought.
3: Yeah, of. you really don't know until you walk. No, that's or, right. I could imagine crawling, but like, wow! Yeah, cause crawling they, would
4: be even more intense. Yeah, though, it? that was
3: their theory that they crawled. It would be. I can't imagine taking more than a couple of steps before you turn around.
1: I can't even think of a street in Halifax to compare it with. Even the walk up Citadel Hill isn't this vertical. Which brings us to the question we can't stop asking. But why? Why is she here? What the hell is she doing up here? Why is she here?
4: Why is she here? Yeah. Right. One of the police theories was that Holly went on her hands and knees and climbed to the top of the embankment.
1: According to police theory, she came up one of these. I think we can just walk up. Okay. here we go. The angle is so steep, the Tom, Peter, and I lower to our hands and knees to commando crawl to the edge of the abutment, looking down. Wow. I would think this is more than 20 feet down. When you're looking down, it's a very sharp drop, measuring 22 feet, which works out to be about 6.7 meters.
4: They estimated she was found 12 and a half feet out from the northeast corner. Yeah. From the north anchor, that's this one.
1: Yeah.
3: So if she crawled, as they say, that's quite a steep, long crawl, but as you're crawling, of course, your hands are going first. Why would you keep
4: going after your hand reached, reached a drop off? I mean, she would have to know.
1: There's nothing nothing there.
4: Yeah. I can't see how she could Unless she walked up. But if she went hands and knees...
1: But why would she, though?
4: Oh, I mean, I can't get into that yet, but...
1: Even think about, like, at this angle. Like, what would what would make you think that you were heading somewhere...
4: The angle is very surprising to me. Even if she's intoxicated. Yeah.
1: She's going worse, to know right?
4: something is not right here. Yeah.
3: Wouldn't you be more likely to go off a side than all the ways to the top? If you
4: were to fall, you know. Well, uh, if you're going to the top, what are you going to? Yeah, exactly. You know, some will say, oh, she's walking towards the traffic. Yeah, yeah. But she would know better than that. Yeah. Taxi dropped her off at home.
3: That's yeah. what he said. Supposedly. Why is she walking towards traffic? Yeah, it's not like she can mistaken
1: this with the incline of her driveway. Walking back down the abutment, Tom stops and lowers into a crouching position. If you look at this surface, it's got a coating on it. Yeah. you got a, a big exposed area here. From before it was redone, you mean? The abutment was recovered in 2012. Tom stoops down to a spot where the new layer is cracking, exposing the dust of the original surface underneath it.
4: If, in fact, Holly came up here, stuff. if you give it a rub, see that white dust? Yeah. That's cement dust. So her pants, if she came up on her hands and knees, would have cement dust. If she did that, there's two articles that could help us determine whether or not that happened. The first article is her pants, where she would have gone on her hands and knees, and I'm hoping that there may be some cement granules within the fibers of her pants.
1: Do you think they uh, would still be there now? Sure, why not? Because Marion pants weren't washed. Marion has them.
4: The second thing is her footwear. Had she gone up on her hands and knees, there should be scuff marks on her toes. That's something that I would like to explore a little bit further.
1: I never thought about concrete dust, but if we can test her clothing and her shoes, we might be able to confirm whether she was actually on that abutment or not. Okay, I want to ask you one more thing. What about the fact that the blunt force trauma wasn't on from the, it wasn't on the back of her skull, right? So how did she land? She had a hematoma
4: the, at the brainstem. stem. Yeah. Back here. She had an abrasion contusion here. She had an abrasion contusion here on her chin. The leg that she had the... Fracture. Right. Yeah. That whole leg was bruised from her ankle
1: to her hip. I'm just trying to figure out, like, if the suggestion that she fell off the abutment, does it make sense to you that she could get that head injury from falling that distance? Oh,
4: sure she could. She could also get it from falling off a chair. And on the inside of her upper lip and lower lip, there was contusions or bruises on the inside of but her that,
1: lips. that could have been from getting intubated though, right? In the hospital?
4: In the I'd hospital. Have to ask. I'd have to ask the medical examiner. I'm just saying what was in the
1: report. The, the okay. Okay, well, we really want to show you this video, old friend, of Randall yeah, finding I the want to see we it. We walk away from the site, the abutment behind us, the harbor stretching out before us, with a line of traffic in between and below us. I open my laptop on the hood of Tom's truck
4: If I understand correctly, the bridge police went through the area. The police went through the area. The dog went through the area. Right. No cane.
1: The police did two canine sweeps. Two. Yeah. No cane. No cane. Right. And these folks find it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And they do. Okay. So here we are. You ready? Yeah. Okay.
0: Take your time. That's it. Yeah, I found it. I have found Holly Bartlett's cane. And as you can see, this is barbed wire, Holly Bartlett. As far as I'm concerned, Change there's foul play right? involved yeah. here. And I have found money on the scene as well. Um, this is very, very suspicious. And I truly hope that justice prevails in this situation.
4: Yeah, and just stop. what's red?
1: That's the, That's the, the end very of the end, end of yes. the cane,
4: yeah. So the
1: cane is white, except for the bottom part. See how it's like totally embedded in these little reeds. Okay.
0: First I found the money, and then I found her cane. She went right along here somehow, and somehow Holly Bartlett's body was found on the other side of a barbed wire fence, and her cane was left standing straight up. That is definitely foul play.
2: There's
4: What do you think? It's very unusual that the police would go through an area twice. Patrol officers and then IDENT, members who were here, who specialize in scenes. It's strange that they would go through it. There's two times. Then we had the bridge police go through it. There's three. And then the dog went through it twice. So you're talking... Five to six times that area was searched. That Although in the found. beginning
1: they didn't know they were looking for it. It wasn't until Mary said- over. It
4: sticks out like a sore thumb. It it's does. It's a white cane in a brown environment. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's in behind a lot of growth. That had the cane been thrown, I highly doubt it would land in that area like that. That had to get placed in behind. Yeah. Now could it have been thrown up in the air and, and then, tumble but, and then come down? Yeah. Anything's possible, it's not likely. But not with the bottom, like placed in the middle of all those vines, right? You you wouldn't, I I think it's highly unlikely. I don't think the cane was there when the police were here. That's what my instincts tell me, just from the cane alone. Which means sometime through that day, because it was that, is it the morning she's found?
1: Yeah, the Saturday.
4: And she passes on? Sunday morning. Sunday. The hospital. The cane is found on Sunday. That's right. So sometime from the last visit of the police, and when these folks came down through here, that cane got placed in there. I do not believe that cane was thrown. Had Holly fallen, and she falls, hands go to the side, cane takes a trip. It's not gonna land like that. You couldn't duplicate it. And on a steep hill, right? You couldn't duplicate it. And with the vines all. There's too many vines in front of it, and it's embedded into a series of roots. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll say I firmly believe that cane was placed there sometime after the police were done here. I can tell you that definitively. That's my belief. I could be wrong.
1: I don't think I am. Tom, we've been up to our necks in this and we've sought help from a bunch of people, including yourself. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? (laughs)
4: Hmm. What are you trying to achieve?
1: I mean, from my perspective as a journalist, I want as much information as possible. So I do have things on my list that I'm that I'm actively trying to get to I want to find that bus driver I would love to know definitively do they still have that video from the number seven on the night of March 26th and then even based on what you're saying the next day like does the footage from the next day or Sunday roll forward right so we could see from all those I mean I, I don't know maybe it's impossible maybe it's gone but that's one thing I want to get to and the third major thing that I want to get back to is um, the cab company and find out about this particular driver's um, habits and if his fare was logged after all of this allegedly happened. What, what was the rest of this person's night like? Um, are, do, are there any records of payment via credit or debit? Or, you know, is there anything involving GPS? Like, well,
4: the cab company can't tell you anything. That's an infringement on his privacy. It's, it's, Even if he no longer works for it's, them? I would think they they could face civil action. There would be litigation, I believe, if they give any information regarding him without his consent, just cause, or his consent. The just cause being a warrant.
1: Right. Every time we make progress in this case, I have the same question, and now, finally. I can ask Tom Martin. I'm just wondering if any of this has the shape or feel that could lead to new evidence. Yes, without question of it over. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett. This podcast is produced by Ocean Entertainment. Our executive producer is Johanna Elliott. Our supervising producer is Jennifer Camo. What Happened to Holly Bartlett is edited by Fabian Melanson and written and hosted by me, Maggie Rar. Podcast sound design and mix by Village Sound. For accessible media, regional content specialist is Ryan Delahanty and Andrew Morris is development and production executive.
0: This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to subscribe.